This is Nicole Murphy. This is Rachel Emanuel. Hi, this is John Cohen. Hey, everyone. This is Glenn Jung from Bright Light News. This is Drew Weatherhead. This is Tarek Elnega. This is Ed Dowd, and you're listening to the Sean Newman Podcast. Welcome to the podcast, folks. Happy June. Ooh, yeah. Love this. I love a new start to uh, the episodes. There's, uh, uh, for newcomers, that's a bunch of the folks who showed up in May start off the episodes in June. So uh, that's exciting. Here in June, June 10th, SMP Presents is back, Luongo and Craner. Uh, you only got a few more days. The The hard date, or the first date, I should say, not the hard date, the first soft date to have my numbers into the casino is today. So if you're uh, holding on the fence, you're like, ah, maybe I should come, maybe I shouldn't. Today is the day to get your 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 tickets because uh, obviously the day of you just can't walk in and buy tickets. We have to have their numbers in for supper and all that good stuff uh, in advance. And then obviously, uh, not obviously, then Monday is the hard date of the final number. So if you're sitting here listening to this and you're like, ooh, I should grab a ticket, the tickets are in the show notes. Of course, we have Tom Luongo coming in from Florida, Alex Craner coming in from uh while flying in from France, uh, and I was just ironing out the details, hotels, and all that good stuff for them uh, last night. So it, it's all uh, set to go. We're going to have a, a few different people in, in the audience coming to town. you got Leighton Gray coming in, get, uh, guest of the podcast not that long ago. Uh, this guy named Chris Barber is going to be in town. I don't know if any of you folks know him. Anyways, it should be an interesting night. Looking forward to, to you know, an S&P Presents being back rolling. I think it's going to be a fun evening and uh, look forward to all of you being there. And hopefully we can have some fun and get Tom and Alex, uh, you know, rolling as they do. And uh, hopefully get, get them talking about some, you know, things that are going on in the world and how it's going to slowly come back to uh, roost here in Canada and, you know, closer to home. Uh, we got uh, the Substack is in the show notes as well. I've been, uh, you know, it's it's funny. I, you know, I set off to make one a week and I am um, haven't hit that goal and I'm trying not to be too hard on myself as I, as I slowly uh, work away at learning how to uh, get material out weekly, you know, write, all that good stuff. I know everyone's like, oh, just pound it out. It's like, I don't know. I'm messing around with my thoughts and trying to get them out on paper, and and that is uh, an interesting endeavor, is what I would say. Um, I've been enjoying the process, but it's it's taken more, not time, but more. Just, it's taken a lot of energy, I guess, to be very methodical and and getting out some thoughts that I think I want to have out there. Uh, for all you to read. And I know that sounds maybe a little too much of a, you know, I, I don't know what, how that sounds. I just know if, if you're following along the Substack, you can sign up for that. That also is in the show notes. Uh, and certainly I'm just taking my time and making sure I get uh, everything, um, you know, correct there. And I, I don't know, it's it's a work in progress, folks. All right, how about this? The, we got a bunch of different sponsors on today's episode. Ignite Distribution out of Wainwright, Alberta. They can supply uh, automotive, industrial safety, welding, and automotive parts. And I said automotive twice. I don't know why I did that. They're, they do on-site inventory management. So if you, uh, you know, they make sure that you don't run out of whatever it is that makes you run. And all you got to do is give Shane Stafford a call today, 780-842-3433. Rectech Power Products, they've committed to excellence in the power sports industry. They offer a full lineup, uh, including uh, 
Can-Am, Ski-Doo, Sea-Doo, Spider, Mercury, Evinrude, Mahindra, Roxer, and uh, certainly this is the time of year to be, you know, oh man, it's just like we're getting close to the end of school, summer holidays, and the toys are sure are going to be coming out. And if you want to stop in, take a look at their showroom, they got a lot of cool stuff down there. Uh, or maybe you need some odds and, odds and ends or upgrades, uh, maintenance. Uh, they're open Monday through Saturday. And for further details, you can find out uh, rectechpowerproducts.com. Uh, McGowan Professional Chartered Accountants. Certainly, there is nobody higher than uh, Kristen in my mind when it comes to this thing. She, uh, I was just joking with somebody about, you know, like, I don't know. When it comes to paperwork and all that stuff, it's just, it's not my cup of tea. And then you run into Kristen and her team and it's like they, they enjoy it funny to run into people who enjoy what they do folks well she's been in the financial industry since 2009 and her education and experience in this field have been a, uh, have been focusing on helping small medium small to medium sized businesses with a wide range of advice and assistance mainly in agricultural retail not-for-profit and in the oil and gas sectors they're also looking to uh, hire a CPA and would love to grab someone local for more information go to mcgowancpa.ca and uh well, and of course, we love, you know, they they, they believe in the show. I, I wrote this down because I thought this was cool. Uh, Kristen believes in the show and supporting free speech and starting conversations. So that's pretty cool. Now, uh, let's get on the tale of the tape brought to you by Hancock Petroleum. For the past 80 years, they've been an industry leader in bulk fuels, lubricants, methanol, and chemicals delivering to your farm, commercial, or oil field locations. For more information, visit them at HancockPetroleum.ca. <laughs> She has her PhD in biology, specifically plant genetics. I'm talking about Kate Crosby. So buckle up, here we go. Welcome to the Sean Newman Podcast. Uh, today I'm joined by Kate Crosby. I'm just clicking play because on this bloody Zoom uh, feature, I know how exactly this is going to go. 40 minutes is going to go like that. And uh, anyways, long story short, uh, happy to have you aboard, Kate. Well, thanks, Sean. Appreciate it. <laughs> this has been uh, Vance has been on me about this, and uh, sometimes I I I seem to drag my feet on things, or I get busy, or I get whatever it is. And uh, it's been a long time coming to finally have uh, a conversation with you. So I'm happy we finally get to do it. That being said, there's going to be a lot of people who've never heard of Kate Crosby. So, Kate, how will you give us a little bit of your background, and we'll we'll jump off from there. Yeah. Um, so born and raised in the east coast of Canada. Spent some time, I suppose, in Ontario, eventually migrated, matriculated down to the United States of America. I'm a dual citizen and I work in agriculture uh, right now with a focus in controlled environment agriculture. So that's just a fancy word for for greenhouses. Um, Um, but yeah, uh, mostly with a focus on like uh, higher value crops. So things like tomatoes, cukes, berries, lettuce, even, uh, and a focus on kind of like local food sovereignty. Yeah. I kind of really don't, I'm going to ask about it. This is like foreign to me, kind of just even the terminology, like higher value crops. Why is a tomato a higher value crop? Yeah, that's a really good question. You know, um, it, it tends to be kind of one of those things. I think we, we had talked about this, like 
what's more rare is more valuable or what's sure. rare is beautiful. So um, I think like with respect to crops that applies to you, so your common ones, your big six, and I used to work in Monsanto too, are corn, soy, cotton, wheat, canola, and sorghum. I got the six. So those are the big acreage crops down in the States and generally worldwide too. There might be a few others, but uh, they kind of get the commodity charge on them, but everybody needs them, right? It's kind of like the base layer of the food pyramid, um, similar to oil and gas maybe. And then further up, you have your more sort of refined products, I, I guess like um, rootstock tomatoes. So those are those nice kind of like tomatoes that you get in your garden. Uh, you might get like some nice fancy like long English cucumbers, but they're almost luxury items, right? Like they're not kind of high energy in terms of if you eat them, you don't necessarily get the benefit of the energy, but they're nice to have. And they do have good micronutrients. So there you go. It must be just me because I think a tomato and I'm like, Oof. it's like one, <laughs> one, uh, I don't know, what am I calling a vegetable? Am I calling a fruit? What is it a, a mixture? Anyways, yeah. it doesn't ma much matter. It, it, me and it do not get along unless <laughs> it's got a, a ton of sugar added to it and they call it ketchup, you know? Like, I mean, yeah, yeah totally. And um, I mean, you know, I, I think that that's kind of how within ag we view it. So we kind of view vegetables as sort of being the far off sort of low value in the sense that it's low volume, but it's high value in the sense as per unit, uh, people tend to pay more for it. I know my folks who are uh, on Cape Breton Island, Nova Scotia are paying a hell of a lot for fruit, fruits and vegetables right now in Canada. Um, and food costs have seemingly inflated this year and the year before. So. How how is it down in the states? Like, are you seeing like I, I guess what are you seeing down there? You know, like you kind of have an interesting uh, a view of things because you obviously having roots from Canada, but now living abroad. Um, you know, yeah. what what do you stare at when you're you're seeing all the funny things go on here in Canada, or even the states for that matter? Yeah, so I mean, with agriculture, uh, I'm in in California, so I'm in the Central Valley as well. So not on the coast, it's the biggest agricultural valley in the world. Uh, so it gets very dusty in the summer, very hot. It's much hotter than the coast. It's very flat, um, but it's extremely diverse and rich in terms of what it can grow. Um, so for the most part, if you go to roadside stands, you get the benefit of cheap. But if you go to the supermarkets, uh, generally those costs tend to be higher, uh, I would say. But you know, if you know where to shop, you can get a pretty good deal because uh, we're very close to close to the ground in terms of tree, nut, vine, anything, really. Uh, it's a very lucky climate to live in. It's a Mediterranean climate. So most of those zones th through the world have typically been able to produce a lot of good crops. You can think of Rome or Italy. That was a Mediterranean zone. Greece, similar um, until it all falls apart. Right. I'm just kidding. <laughs> what I, i'm you know what what led you down that road you know I, I always get asked like why podcasting why did you want to do this you know and how did you fall into it it's like i stare at what you're talking about and you know um working for monsanto and i i, I would be curious about that um but it just you know the road of going into uh uh agriculture but you know, you should probably give the listener a bit more uh, of exactly what you do, because at the end of the day, I, I guess my first 
thought is why, like, what is it that draws you to plants? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. So, um, for me, I guess like formally and sort of very short, I, I did a PhD in plant genetics. So went to Dalhousie out East, got my PhD. <laughs> just, <laughs> yes. got my P, just got my PhD, no big D. But I really like genetics. And um, so that's a really appealing subject to me. Uh, and I think like Monsanto as a corporation has use for that skill, right? It's, it, it, I very much got to apply uh, what I learned in school and in an actual job, which is great. Sometimes people go to school and, you know, it doesn't quite match yeah, up. Right? Get a history degree and then come work in the oil field and then line up in podcasting. And then you're like, kind of like, what, what? anyways, yeah, I know. I'll you're still, that. you're still successful, man. Come on. <laughs> uh, you're very successful, but, but it was one of those kind of nice one-to-one. So, um, and I think with plants, one of the things that's really nice about them is they don't move and they're little energy receptors. And, and so I have an interest in energy. Um, and the, the biggest source of energy, at least in our solar system, is the sun. And even with the sun, you know, you can kind of relate that back to hydrocarbons and oil because ultimately what oil is, is like compressed plants and animals, like high under pressure. And you probably know more about this, but that's it initially where it comes from. So it's, it's all down to the sun, right? It's all down to plants. Um, and so I have an interest in plants because I kind of view them as good receptors for light. And in my mind, light is a measure of time. So I, I have some techniques and I suppose some, some inventions toward growing plants faster using light and time, which is a form of, of energy really. So, yeah. That's my interest. <laughs> well, you make uh, you make that sound like it's going to be a great science fiction novel. I'm not going to lie. Um, when you talk about light as a measure of time, can you explain that to me? Yeah, I can. Um, so if you're familiar with kind of the, the Peterson terms of chaos and order, you can think about it that way. So sometimes uh, if you're feeling heated emotionally, right, feeling heated, um, you're disordered. Somebody might tell you to go cool down to become more ordered. So with light, typically we experience that as heat um, and you get more kind of disorder as you go forward, as you, as you bombard something with energy. So I always like to think of it that way is like light is kind of a form of disorder and more and more and more of it. Um, pushes you more towards like either growth or destruction. And I guess like with less light, you know, you can think of like wintertime in Canada and you're in Lloydminster. So it's, it gets pretty dark up there. It um, does. <laughs> so there's really not a lot of, there's not a lot of particle movement. So when light hits something, uh, typically some of that energy is released as heat, as disordered heat. So particles move around, that's actually heat. Um, with less of it, there's more order. And I like to say there's, there's technically less time because if everything were to stop, there would be no time, but with too much, too much heat, you get ultimate disorder as well. So that's, that's what the sun is. Right. So this is a very far out conversation, but it does have very proximate sort of parameters to it and how you manipulate it. As and well. you're speaking to a dense guy today. Cause I'm trying to grasp what you're throwing at me. I'm like, <laughs> 
I don't get it. I don't get yeah. how light equals time. Because, I mean, if it, if it's warm or it's cold, and yeah. I, somebody out there driving along is like, Sean, you're a moron. And that's fine. That's fine no, today, no, folks. No, 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 it's a, it's a, it's a hard concept to, to wrap your, your head around. And um, it's hard. It was a hard concept for me to wrap my head around. So I'll put it this way. Let me try to put it another way. Okay. In the summer, you've got, you've got three kids, right? Correct. Right. Uh, it's the heat of the summer in July. What do you put on them before they go outside? Sunscreen. Why? protect them from the sun burning why do you think they burn in the summer but they don't burn in the winter um well i'm going to assume the position of the sun over us and uh the fact that i mean instead of having zero time with the the sun out which pretty much is six months a year for for i mean just look at today here in good old alberta it's like plus 30 so i mean it's just hotter and sun's out longer very little cloud cover i yeah. don't know if any of that hit the mark it did it did you're you're totally right and uh, a lot of older ladies often wear sunscreen on their face to protect themselves from aging and it's a very specific so i always like to think of aging as kind of fast time and that's that ultraviolet band of the sun that gets through at specific times of year um, and so plants respond to that too, but like they do, they have specific colors that they do respond to, but ultraviolet specifically ages, ages human skin cells. It will also stop uh, stomates on plants from opening. So it stops them growing if there's too much of it, if there's too little. Um, so I like to think about it that way. That's the easiest way I can probably loop folks in is like, well, why do you put on sunscreen? Cause you don't want to age. Oh, cause it's fast time in the summer with ultraviolet light. You want to stop that kind of from coming through. So that's the, that, that's as close as I can probably get to it. But like, and the specific like parameter is two, 280 nanometers. Like you don't want that on your skin. Any, any, any further down that, that end of the spectrum of the light spectrum and in your So are you saying in this, I, I don't know if I'm getting this right at all. So yeah. I might be buggling this up in the summertime. Are you saying it's a different color of light coming through? So, so more ultraviolet light. So that's violet. You can think of it as purple. Correct. The experience is just bright light because all colors are coming at once in the heat of the day. Um, but yes, there is absolutely more ultraviolet light in the summer. And there is less in the winter. Sometimes it bounces off the snow and you can get it sure. if you're skiing, but um, it's definitely way less. Um, most of what penetrates in the winter are what we call red and infrared, uh, even if we experience it as, you know, kind of whitish light or bluish light. Blue still penetrates, but at midday. And as you get closer to sort of blue, so if you think of the rainbow, right? Red's kind of like your low and slow heat. Um, Purple and blue are kind of like your hot heat and uh, high energy heat and things that are that are actually going to warp things a bit. And then you go further out in the spectrum and that's gamma radiation, which is actually radioactive and will kill you. So um, that we don't want we don't want that. We don't want that. That doesn't reach our planet. But so (laughs) I'll just say this. You can use certain colors to direct plant growth and development and manipulate how fast they grow. Um, and that's kind of what I'm very focused on at the moment. So you're saying (laughs) if you give a plant, let's just say you could do this 
yeah. in a certain type of light, you can age yeah. it faster. That's correct. That's correct. So, hmm, that's a deep thought, you know, when you really think about it. Because, I mean, like, that, I mean, to, to build that in the universe would be almost impossible, right? But to put it in a greenhouse, all of a sudden you have real control over the environment and you could essentially grow things really, 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 really fast, essentially. Right. Yeah, you get more pounds per unit time. That's kind of how we think of it. Yeah. Pounds of product, pounds of crop, pounds of whatever per unit time. That kind of hurts my head a little bit. I don't I want, know. <laughs> I, once asked, I once asked a, a, a Chris Montoya yeah. something right at the end. I, I, it's funny. I've never interviewed him since. He, I said something about time travel. He's like, oh, we've done it. And I'm like, what? And he's like, we've done time travel. I'm like, what are you talking about? Yeah. And he's like, oh, we'll talk about it next time. And I've never followed up on that. And somewhere in the back of my brain, it's lodged. And you're talking about not time travel in a sense, but that you could speed up time. Well, I mean, yeah, as, as the plant experiences, yes, yes. And I think, you know, you could probably do it to other organisms and even humans, but it would be very cruel. I mean, you think about solitary confinement, if you leave the lights on for 23 hours of the day, like that's going to screw up your internal clock and how you experience time. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that sounds like torture, not actual living, doesn't it? It does, doesn't it? But thank goodness plants don't have feelings. At least we think. I'm pretty sure they don't. <laughs> so where do you see that going then? Do you see, like, do you see, like, um, the ability for greenhouses to uh, perfect a way to shorten the growing period for plants so that, I mean, yeah, just think about that. Like, think of the possibilities, I guess, that could come out of that. Yeah, I think, like, I mean, I live in California now, so very lucky to have the like climate that we do. But I I do eventually want to return back to Canada. Uh, it gets a little hot here in the summer. Um, so anyway, you're missing that, you're missing winter, are you? I am missing winter. You might be the only one, Kate. I don't know how many people really. So. Everybody's <laughs> fleeing. They're like, get me out of this. You go through like the dark days of winter and in january and february and you're just crawling at the wall you know it gets plus one here and pretty soon you're just walking around t-shirts and shorts nobody's even judging you because you're just like i get it i get it man yeah. drink it in you know yeah yeah no i definitely miss winter i mean canada is is a place i definitely miss and i always try to go at least three times a year um mostly to nova scotia um where i'm from so yeah well yeah. that's that's a beautiful spot i've only been just once in my life uh and uh was i mean uh, i've been telling my wife that we need to uh take another tour with the kids at some point across canada because you get to the eastern part well if you know um certainly nova scotia and and well everywhere over there and it's just a different world from the west right like they're not even the i mean just beautiful in their own ways yeah it's it's interesting you know canada is kind of in my mind divided into different zones um I, I never really look at politics. I always look at geography first. Um, even in the States, like geography speaks to me more than, than a person's politics or culture initially, because I feel like geography is sort of the base layer and sort of influences that moving outward, if that makes sense. So if you're, so you're saying, yeah. you're saying if you're, you're stuck in the middle of the oil field 
and see what it does for your community, you're going to have certain thoughts on the oil field. But if you live, um, you know, in the Rocky mountains per se, and I don't know if that's the right, right spot or not folks, but, uh, you could have a different view of it cause you don't actually, you know, see and deal with it firsthand. It's kind of what yeah. you're pointing at. Yeah, that's right. Um, and, and I think we all experience it that way, but we may not think about it that way. Um, there's a really interesting, um, Russian author. I, I haven't read the book yet, but I've read sort of the pricey it's Alexander Dugan. And I think it, the Greeks sort of talk about this too, but land power and sea power. Um, so I think often what you find, and this is throughout history and even, you know, throughout continents. So land sort of heartland tends to be more conservative, especially if there's wide open land and no barriers. So if there's no sea, because the sea is a natural barrier and mountains are natural barriers. So there's a there tech there's often like a very sort of I have to I have to work this land I have to get stuff out of it I have to protect it, um, whereas if you go to the sea and you live on the coast, you're very much dependent on land power. So sea power is about trade and kind of eking out what you can uh, and forming relationships with others, hopefully uh, to to kind of make your society work. And the idea is, is that both should sort of collaborate and cooperate um, in order to, to sort of build something more. Um, but but a lot of times it goes awry. It's it's not just in Alberta, Sean. <laughs> well, I mean, the best of uh, uh, if you had balance or, uh, I guess, synergies where they work together, you know, they both offer something the other doesn't have. Uh, That's right. And and by doing that, you should reap the best of both worlds. But usually things like greed and, and power and probably a whole bunch of other things come into effect and it never happens quite exactly how, uh, you know, maybe it's designed to. You, uh, growing up, how close were you to the ocean then? Oh, you're only ever 90 minutes from Nova Scotia. So, so are you afraid? Are you afraid of the ocean or are you like, oh, no, I love being on it? I love the ocean. I love the mountains and I love ag. It's really hard for me to sort of say like what I prefer. Uh, I would miss each one and they all have their uniqueness about them. It seems that in Canada, and this is my read, this is not, I don't, and I, keep in mind where I'm located, I may not get the best and most updated Canadian news. I, I don't think anybody really has much intersubjectivity in news anymore, but it seems to me that like Canada is very kind of separated at the moment, specifically post COVID. Um, but even it was trending that way, even in like the, the year 2000, 2005 ish onward. Um, and I'm not really sure how that began. Uh, I just know that it's it it's kind of increased. And it's been something that I've just been like kind of down on. Like the 90s was all about Quebec trying to separate. And now it seems like it's the West. And so, um, yeah, I, I don't know how that sort of initiated. I have observations on, on why, or, or, but I don't know how it started. I have my own explanations on why. Well, yeah. Well, what are your own explanations? Now you got me. I mean, give us some of your wisdom, Kate. I don't know if it's wisdom or if it's just like pulling something out of thin air. Um, so I think 
uh, I might have talked to you about this before, something called regulatory capture and, and what is rare is valuable. So this is this idea that if you can manipulate the supply of something, it becomes more valuable. So there was a certain company that I worked for that had new technology um, and they wanted, let's just say they were GMOs because they were, um, and they were safe, but they wanted to control the market. And so the way in which one might control the market is by establishing so many regulations such as to make it rare that they were the only ones able to control it. So let's say, oh, it needs to go through seven years of testing before it's declared safe. If you're a young startup company trying to get into that space, it will take you a long time to sort of push that forward. And I think with respect to um, maybe Alberta and oil companies, I might suggest that, you know, by constraining the supply of oil, it might actually be more valuable to the companies. And that also, who are the shareholders of the companies is the other question I always ask. And in general, it's like for, for, for Canadians, I don't even know if most people know this, but like, it's like there's something ridiculous, like maybe like 10 companies in the TSX that are oil companies. So almost everybody that has a retirement plan is a shareholder and owner of Canadian oil. And so it's this really weird tension. I, I would almost say it's like an emergent property of like a big financial system where shareholders want to gain more value out of oil they own, right? They want, they want to retire. They want to have a nice life. But simultaneously, it can only maybe get more valuable if that supply is limited. Because if you let it go, maybe it, maybe it doesn't increase in value, right? Like if you flood the market with oil, what happens to the price of a barrel? It goes down. If you constrain it, what happens to the price of the barrel? It goes up. And what happens to the profits of those companies? And then what happens to the shareholders' funds? They go up too. And so these are just things that I've thought about with respect to Alberta, but also kind of in general, I always like to look at like, what are the incentives for why someone might want to restrict resources in one place or another, uh, rather than getting super upset about it. It's like, what are the incentives for restricting, you know, oil supply in Canada? What are the incentives? Who has something to gain? And I'm not saying I know who, but like, those are the questions you might ask. So when you look at uh, different pipelines getting shut down or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, you go, maybe, just maybe, the very oil companies that would help, it would actually help if they never put those through. It's possible. Yeah. It is possible. Hmm. What's rare is valuable, just like Bitcoin. I mean, stock to flow ratio. I don't know. I, it if, is if, Can that, if Canada <laughs> was the only one in the world that could offer it, maybe that makes sense. But when you have like, how many countries can supply the world with oil? Doesn't that become a little bit tougher? 
Because you it think does. of like Russia, you think of Saudis, you think of Venezuela, you think of Canada, you think of the United States. I'm yeah. sure I'm missing about 20 other countries. Um, sure. But, uh, and then, the, and then the next question I, you know, I guess it comes to mind is, so then is there like eight guys pulling the strings that are behind all that? I don't think it. Yeah. So I was like, I want to separate causality from emergent property. So what I mean by that is like, we often look for scapegoats or who's responsible in a big system when really it's just because incentives got tied together in the wrong way. So if you have like, I don't know, I think the Canadian government is the biggest employer in Canada. I think that's true. Um, And most of them have pension plans and most of them own the TSX which is the the largest sort of stock index fund, you know, in Canada, they own portions of it. So they own the very oil companies that they may be, they may have opinions against. Um, I don't think, so that's kind of an emergent thing, right? So when incentives become tied together, I think things go murky. I also think that Recently, it seems like with respect to a certain, you know, the war in Ukraine, the the price of the commodity has spiked up. I mean, who had incentive to do that? I'm I'm not sure. Uh, and then you see sort of other games afoot with with kind of OPEC trying to flood supply, right, or trying to restrict supply. Um, so I do think that these these kind of games go on, but I never really look to the to the politicians, I always look towards the companies themselves um, and their and whoever their shareholders are. Do their shareholders want a return? Oh, yes, they do. Okay, how can they get that return? It might be That's- when when I go back to when you were first mentioning the um, GMOs and like the seven years to get into it because it's you know their technology and they kind of found ways to put a lot of hurdles in the way. Uh, that makes a lot of well, I guess in my brain that makes a lot of sense because uh, if you're a company that has you know uh, a hold on a market, the way to keep your hold is to uh, is to essentially uh, uh, make it difficult for others to get into the said market. Essentially, that's right. The so a that's that's when I think about that. Let's just take oil out of it for a second. I'm like, oh man. If you're making billions of dollars, how much, how many, how much money do you, but then I don't know. I don't know the murky world that is that, that's like, nope, nobody's ever come. Cause it's kind of like podcast. Well, I mean this in a really cheap sense, folks. I mean, anyone could start a podcast tomorrow, uh, at least for the time being. And I guess we'll wait and see where that ever goes. But like, it'd be like Sean's the first podcast ever. And instead of encouraging, encouraging others to podcast, he's like, nope. You actually have to do like the seven years of things to even get to where you uh, get a podcast on the air. And for most people, nobody would be willing to go through that. I mean, obviously, that'd be a, a we're not talking seven days. We're talking we're talking a long period of time when you yeah. bring it back to oil, though. Uh, certainly in an area, you can put in a lot of uh, different stipulations in order for companies to drill or whatever. You know, there's going to be a whole bunch there. But on the world stage. They're playing different a different game than I think I even understand anymore. Uh, because yeah. you mentioned OPEC, you mentioned different countries, how they how they toy and yeah. mess with each other's economies. Like uh, I think I kind of understand, but at the same time, it's like I'm yeah. playing checkers and they're playing uh, you know forty chess or whatever. 
Yeah, this is something I'm I'm particularly interested in because it relates to ag on the base layer. But um, you know, it it seems like there are probably two, maybe three empires out there. So there's the American empire that we don't really speak about, but we know that Canada's part of, we know that most of Western Europe is part of, and they kind of share resources and trade very deeply. And, you know, if you're not the empire itself, you kind of got to be part of one for arms and defense. Um, and then you have OPEC and OPEC plus, which is sort of separate. So you have two, two different teams really. Um, so one way in which, you know, you could offset trade is by saying, oh, well, maybe there's alternative energy forms so I don't have to trade with you because I don't like what you're doing. That might also be something uh, that that is happening. There may also be just a, a general kind of like, hey, I need to make sure that the price of oil is a certain amount so that my country thrives. Um, so there's probably games there too. But I do know that uh, it's mostly the United States that guarantees uh, trade throughout the oceans. And that's generally how, how things flow. So if you think of like the Trans Mountain Pipeline, you know, it needed to roll through British Columbia, then roll over to where? Where was that oil going? That's the question, right? It's likely going to a place that the United States didn't want it to go. And so if the United States doesn't want it to go there, I would say largely it has a large say in, in where that energy goes. So, and what they can charge for it because they're the ones defending it. And it's not Canada that's, you know, making sure that trade route is clear. This is how I think about things, I guess. Mm. Yeah. For the listener, we had to take a, a short break. We're uh, patching things together here on good old technology. And I was, uh, you know, we were, we were talking about a, a few different things regarding oil and that type of thing. But uh, one of the things we'd written down before we started was um, why politicians are false gods and do not have as much power as they seem. They are merely middle managers. And I, I read that and I'm like, you know, we got an election coming here in Alberta in no time flat. And actually, by the time this is released, it'll be dang near uh, happened. So uh, I thought, why better uh, way to, to switch gears and really, well, I don't know how much it's switching gears from oil and, and control from the U.S. and everything else, but politics, wh why, what comes to mind when I rattle that off? Uh, I would, I kind of tend to view the current PM in Canada. As a jackass? Oh, sorry, sorry. <laughs> Uh, at the current time to be a, a middle manager um, to larger interests that he doesn't really control but is dictated to and then dictates downward. Um, but I think they make terrific scapegoats. So, you know, it's, uh, it's interesting. He probably does seemingly have a lot of power, but the power that he actually has is whoever is above him. And so we talked a little bit about how um, when systems like financial systems, trade systems get really big, incentives get crossed. Uh, and it's, so it's like, it's kind of almost like who bosses the bosses. Um, and I would say in, in, in PM, you know, JT's case, there's probably a few from a defense and trade perspective, it's pretty clear it's the US, but then the question is, okay, well, who, who is really kind of, you know, guiding the US as well? And it's, 
it's a combination, I think, of ol oligarchic companies. So companies that are on the S&P 500 that have to please a lot of shareholders, which we all buy into. Uh, and as an emergent property, you can kind of get a little bit of chaos out of that. And it's almost, when I think about it, it's like big can really lead to a lot of chaos. Too small is it has its disadvantages too. But when things get very big and convoluted, uh, I, I generally see like most individuals' power go, go way down. And I would say that like of any system, so or in any company even. Uh, if you start off your own small business and you have only a, a few employees, um, you know, it's easy to control. As that employee base gets larger, you have to answer to more people. And so honestly, like, you know, your power diminishes uh, unless you you rule it all. And, and I'm sure like at points in history, there have been kind of monarchs that have ruled over systems that ha they've had a lot of control. Like um, one common US president that had a lot more control over many uh, departments and I would say companies would have been FDR uh, because he was a wartime president and so had special powers. But I don't think we've really seen a, a president in the United States have as much power as FDR. And um, this is something actually that Curtis Yarvin talks about. And I don't know if you've heard of him, but I don't, I don't agree with everything that he says, but I, I agree with that point. I think FDR was the last US president that had a lot of actual power. Um, you know, it's, I don't want to sound jaded, but often my family will be like, well, who are you voting for? Like, who do you think should be nominated for the US presidency? And I was like, honestly, you know who I think should be nominated? The CEO and board of Exxon, the CEO and board of Johnson & Johnson, the because that's actually where sort of power sits, right? They kind of direct downward and sort of dictate um, a lot of laws and legislation because they're ultimately responsible to their shareholders and making a profit. This is the phase we're in right now. I don't think we'll be in this phase forever. But when I look at someone like um, Justin Trudeau, or I look at someone like Joe Biden or even Donald Trump, I'm not sure the entire power resides in that individual. It's who's behind them. Do you yeah. think that's hard for, or, well, I mean, certainly more people are beginning to understand that, but you think that's a hard thing for people to comprehend maybe uh just you know like yes. you, you look at you look at justin trudeau and you go he's our leader and uh he's pulling the strings and he's the guy totally um and it's kind of like it's nice it's kind of like sports politics is totally like sports now right um in some ways it's like that's the team like you know you're either for the team or you're against the team you kind of mythologize them but at the end of the day you know it's it, it, it's a little bit just a game. And I think the other way, maybe humans and, and people kind of like to externalize and say like, he's responsible for everything. And ultimately there is in some circumstances, but when something's so big, I, I really don't think it's one individual. They like to scapegoat and point at somebody possibly because they don't want to look inward at themselves. Right? Like I'll give you an example. So I used to be, I guess, kind of like I came up through academia. So obviously I was like a 
very big like climate change person like and I'd, I'd say I've moderated my views having learned about commodities and how the international trade system works and and how much my entire life revolves around hydrocarbons and also the food system um but I was ready at a certain age to be like, oh, those, you know, those those oil producers just being pollutant. And then I go and I look at, you know, my 401k, which is kind of like a, I, I guess, a RSP in Canada. And I'm like, oh, I'm I'm an owner of an oil company. Interesting. Wow. So I'm being a total hypocrite by doing that. Complete and utter hi- hypocrite. And that's I think people like to scapegoat certain things in frustration knowing that they're ultimately connected to it they're, they're connected to the most thing people i don't think want to acknowledge what you just said you know like most people <laughs> don't want to do that level of no. you know they just want to get angry at the machine absolutely and i i think you know we you know the question is like what do we do if we're constantly getting angry at the machine and how do we how do we sort of change that um well, we realize maybe one, we're linked into it. Maybe if a system gets so big and convoluted, it's really hard to control. And so maybe you step back and you say like, hey, maybe we need a little bit more sovereignty over here and a little less oligopoly, oligarchy happening over here. Let's dial it down a little bit. Um, Growing up in Nova Scotia, I always remember that telephone companies, utility companies were very sort of fractally local in the sense that they were controlled by the community. So we had Maritime Tell and Tell. That got taken over by Bell Alliant. Um, and now it's just Bell, I think. And there are only four companies that sort of uh, provide awful sort of cell phone plans in Canada. And it's so expensive. And similar to the States, really, there's there's only about four or five here to the point where almost every sector in the marketplace has four or five large companies that everybody owns but everybody hates and so it's it it we're kind of wrapped in this embrace sort of yelling at each other not realizing what, happened? what do you think what do you where do you think that goes i don't know um i think the first thing to realize is perhaps maybe this isn't optimal maybe there are maybe we should should break up some of these systems maybe allow them to sort of uh, be geographically distinct would be one way. That's kind of how it worked in the early 1900s till about maybe the 70s. Um, You had much smaller companies. Um, That might be one way. Uh, I think, you know, we'll see a lot of change because I don't know, I don't know if this stays functional. There's always a possibility it gets bigger, which would be worse in my opinion at this point i think big's really hard to manage just generally really big complex systems are hard to manage yeah but you don't see it falling apart well i mean i don't know maybe you do see it falling apart like you you, you mentioned yeah it could sorry go on no i am i'm i'm i don't know i i'm i'm listening and and you got my brain kind of spinning a little bit and i'm just like i don't know like what where like how do you get out of this perpetual cycle we're in i think in general historically there has been some type of falling apart but it's not so disastrous as you think it just kind of kind of happens um but it can be disastrous too right it can be disastrous 
Um, and so we'll see. I don't have any really bold predictions. I just see a lot of interlinking. And when I see a people, uh, myself included, you know, scapegoating a lot, trying to find somebody to blame, in general, I think there's too much interlinking in a system. There's too much connectivity. That's like, oh, okay, well, how do we make the best of a bad situation might be a, a way of looking at it. And how can I go from there? I mean, personally, if, if I'm, I'll just use the example of Alberta, it seems like Alberta wants to get a lot of what it has because it's a very resource-rich province. It's very lucky and blessed that way. Uh, it wants to get that out and it can't for a number of reasons or it can't as optimally as it would like. One of my questions to Albertans might be, well, what can you do with all the energy that you have right in the province that you live in? Like, what can you build with? You can certainly be food sovereign uh, and even have like a lot of different, like we talked about at the start, uh, a lot of sort of really high value crops growing there with such abundant energy. You could have some really decent manufacturing too. The issue might be like, oh, well, we have to pay workers too much. But even with abundant energy, if you have very abundant energy, um, you might be able to control it yourself. I know the provinces have a lot more um, control and jurisdiction over over themselves, even than the states do here. So it, it's it's just something I, I, I was thinking about as you were asking, what do we do? That's, um, a, that's an interesting yeah. point. Uh, I, I forget... If I heard Danielle Smith say that once upon a time in here, obviously she's she's now the premier, because I know she uh, has interviewed or maybe even thought about what you just said and talked about how we can you know how we can make Alberta better by uh, just embracing some of the things we have. It's funny that uh, and maybe it gets talked about, and I just I live under a rock, Kate, and I never see it. But it's it's funny we we want to complain instead of instead of like going you know putting the head down. I, I mean, in saying all that, folks, I can be the first to say the federal government isn't exactly making it easy, are they? But uh, what you're talking about, there's different things that you could be doing here in Alberta that um, would be, well, I, I mean, overall very interesting moving forward. For sure. Um, yeah, I don't know about another province, maybe Saskatchewan. Saskatchewan <laughs> for sure. Yeah. I mean, there's, it's so they're, they're, they're just as dense with uh, resources. I mean, it, it's crazy. Like the two provinces here are just uh, a wealth, you know, just a, a unbelievable wealth of riches. That's right. And it's people are riches too. Um, don't forget that. And <laughs> um, so, so my attitude towards Alberta is let Alberta do what Alberta does best, which is build things and just keep going up the tech stack, right? Like don't just stop at oil, make something with that oil. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, you know, it's funny. I, uh, I don't know how much time, you know, it's funny. The time just seems to like slip on me here. And then of course we're, we've had some issues on, on the tech side of things. So I, 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 you got it. I got about 18 things going on in my brain. This happens from time to time. And I want to pull us back to plants. Cause I'm like, here I am sitting across from a lady who's spent a lot of time staring at plants and genetics and everything else. And I, I was curious, I'm like, I wonder what you've learned from plants that that you can pull across to, um, whether it's the human population, whether it's just an individual person, I don't know how deep or shallow you want to go on that. 
Um, but I'm just like, yeah. you've stared at something for an awful long time. Uh, I assume it had to have spurred on a ton of thoughts in your brain on, uh, on, I don't know, X, Y, Z. I'm not going to yeah. try and guide you any further than that, actually. Yeah. I mean, plants is a metaphor. It's very poetic of you, Sean. <laughs> like, I'm trying to think. It's tough. Um, I guess... You know, one of the things I would think about is plants are sort of a way of um, thinking about the human calendar as well. So kind of in the we have we have I know we, and I'm, I'm not going to get astrological here, but we do literally have a, a winter solstice and a summer solstice where we have in, in really technical terms, kind of the lowest watts per meter squared in the winter of kind of the sun hitting the earth at a specific spot and then that's the summer such a, that's such an interesting way to put it oh my i goodness. know sorry so you asked about plants this is how i think and then in the summer you got like the highest right um so one of the things that uh i sort of think about um as as a canadian and now living sort of much further south is like the seasons grade on me differently in different in different places and that's a lot to do with that watts per meter squared like when i'm getting up like out of hibernation in the winter i'm kind of like oh, like and it's it's just such a big jump into the spring especially you know here. tomorrow morning when i wake up at five to walk the dog i'm gonna be like ooh, the watts are feeling good this morning there you go um <laughs> and i also just love you know i think one of the things that's really interesting about um you know being further north is you get those really nice long summer days. No, oh, they're beautiful. A, I mean, this of... this is this is the best time of year. The next like month to two months. Although I hate getting past June twenty first, which is coming awfully flipping quick, because you get past it and the days start getting shorter, right? And it's like, yeah, I just I just want to kind of stay right here, anyways. Yeah. That's me. Yeah, and I I think the other way I sort of think about it, um, and I've definitely talked with Vance about this, is that. Um, I view folks that like we're talking about urban rural divide and I've lived in both is if you live in a rural area, you typically have kind of like a slower, more intentional pace of life because you have to plan so much. You can't just have everything instantaneously. Like, so I tend to describe cities as blue and, and kind of, <laughs> kind of rural areas as red because red's kind of slow and infrared and like, everything has to be planned out um so and then when you go to the cities everything is fast i can just pick up a phone and you know get takeout right away like not even talk to a human being it's great like you know what i, you know what I love about talking <laughs> to different people is their perspectives on how they see the world and your way of it, like integrating uh light into everything uh energy or however you want to break it down is is yeah. rather interesting um, I was going to say, you know, you can live in the city though, and you can change if you're going to use the, the, how fast, how fast time and planning goes. You know, I did the carnivore diet only, albeit only for a very short period, but just by switching that one thing, which is a large thing, it's how you eat, uh, obviously, um, the amount of planning and preparation and everything that went into that really changed my days, like immediately. So you oh, can yeah. have things living in a city 
or where, or maybe even on the rural uh, side of it, where you can really change, you can flip that script awfully quick. And and I just point to obviously how what you would put in your body, but I no, mean, that's true. I mean, yeah. you can probably switch it awfully quick if you really wanted to. Yeah, it's it's true, and you know, it's really interesting. You mentioned diet. Um, I actually eat kind of a weird diet. I I tend to eat more animal based things in the winter even here in California. And then in the summer, I, it just doesn't agree with me. So I, I'll eat some, but I won't eat it every day. And I'll, I'll eat whatever's here, kind of. And I think like, um, you know, if you think about it, an animal is a much, it grows much slower than a plant. So it eats plants, it's a bioreactor for a plant. And then you're eating that bioreactor. It's kind of, kind of nice. Like, if you don't live in a place that can actually outdoors produce plants well what do you eat you, if you of course eat the animals that can use them so yeah well that's... i'm one of the, one of the ones i haven't tried me and dean have talked about this for a long time and you don't know who dean is anyways is um is a beaver tail they <laughs> they store all their their fat and energy and everything into the beaver tail and the trappers back in the day used to kill a beaver and eat the fat for anyways, because they'd give them all these nutrients and everything. And I'm like, I wonder what that tastes like. It's probably awful, oh, but leather, uh, leathery maybe. Yeah. I, I, I actually, I, I, I've been, you got to watch some different shows on it. It's supposedly it's not that bad, but Hey, what, what, what do, what do I know? I'm yeah. uh, you know, it, diet is, I don't know. Yeah. I always come back to when you, when you're, when you talk about, um, the pace at which we live. I know Vance has brought it up on here before. I think he brought it up at the rural urban divide too on stage about, you know, the pace between um, the two. Yeah, heck, I, I want to, I'm having kind of deja vu because it might've even been the first time me and him chatted that we talked about this. And mm -hmm. it's funny. I, in your own life, you can do things that can drastically impact the time, like immediately, like yeah. tomorrow. Uh, you know, and all of a sudden you can make days seem like really fast, really short. And uh, how much we distract ourselves can also add in, you know, like uh, certainly there's differences from rural to, to the city. But like one of the things that is pretty relevant in both places now is how much uh, TV or streaming and phone is just available. And that's you time disappears into that machine. Like it's just it's just gone. And pretty soon you're like. Where did the day go? And yeah. you don't need to be at either. It's one of the similarities we all face now, uh, especially in Western culture. Yeah, I guess. Uh, guess what? Guess what light most of these devices emit? I don't know. One blue. <laughs> go fast. There you go. It's almost like our human eye is drawn to it for some reason. I don't really know if uh, it's intentional or not. I know you can get apps that sort of slow it down that make it a little bit more orange so that you don't do you think when it. you think about that though do you think that yeah. was intentional like do you think like, oh, 100 percent yeah. yeah i they... know user interfaces even facebook chose blue for that reason it's also the color blindness thing yeah what do you mean the color blindness most men have red green color blindness so it's not good as a header but they don't blue is you have three sort of color receptors in your retina red blue and green Red and green uh, typically uh, are the most common color blindness, so you don't really see it. Uh, but blue is the least, so the blue is like the the really truest color that you can see. So yeah, I absolutely think it was. So I really messed up by having a gold P for the podcast. Is what you're saying? 
Oh no, P's great. P's not, uh, it's a combination. So I can see it just fine. It looks great. <laughs> Have you ever, you know, like uh, when you mention um, the phone, when you mention Facebook, I I'm curious, like I, I assume Kate, a woman of your talents, and having your background and your expertise, have and I don't even know if you can, I'm putting on the spot, but have you ever like been approached to like work on some random projects with like, you're like, why would you want to know what, you know, how this formulates towards X? Like, does that even make sense? Is, has that ever happened? Because I mean, you're kind of like 100%. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Some really random stuff. I think it's, you know, I guess having having kind of the background of like being a geneticist. So a geneticist always asks the question of like nature to nurture ratio and, and kind of like, oh, well, then what do you get? Um, and, and so I think there's a lot of uh, problems out there where we're like, we want to know kind of what's set in the system. So that's kind of almost like the nature. Uh, and then what's kind of variable, like what what we can tweak in the environment. Um, so yes, lots of lots of random questions for sure. Uh, I guess like one of my titles at a previous company has been data scientist. Um, I would say that I don't do as much of that anymore. But yeah, random random stuff. You've never been asked to go work for Facebook and then be like, why would you want me to come work here? That makes zero sense. This has nothing to do with plants. So actually, we, we do a whole lot with light and we'd like you to look at these different shades of blue and tell us what, what one's going to drive everybody to it. You know, it's really funny. I was recruited by Facebook like back in like 2015. I was just enjoying I I I'm pretty firmly in the ag camp. Like I, I enjoy plants way too much to to sort of deviate um but yes it wasn't about light but it was just i was actually approached to work for facebook way back when so to do to do what or you i don't even know if you can say oh yeah or... i think it was more like uh i mean it was it was along the lines of getting people sort of into the product and making recommendations uh so and and whether that has to do with the color or the type of advertisement yeah like you know, when, when you think about that, that's, that's, yeah. it's almost unnerving. I would, yeah. I watched a documentary and you know, now I'm really taking you down a different lane here, but I, I just finished, I got a, a guy named uh, Simon Esler coming on and uh, he wrote a documentary, uh, wrote a document, uh, did a documentary called Cut uh, Women of the West, Girls of the West, Girls of the West, maybe. Anyways, it's about um, girls transitioning, right? Uh, so like at a young yeah. age and, and all that. And yeah. just how much, um, how much the device, like when I, when I watch the entire documentary, what it's pointing to is like social media and how much influence it's had on specifically young girls. Yeah. And you're like, Oh man, father, I got a young girl. I'm like, okay, so, okay. And yeah. even when, when I listen to you talk about different lights and blue and everything, and you're like, I don't think we realize what we're up against. Like how much money has been put into the psychology or the science or both of making you addicted to a social well to this thing right like um yeah. we're supposed to live our whole lives off there meanwhile you know there's things going on in the world that you're just like this is not okay and yet oh. we can't seem to give this thing up 
But when I, regardless, when I come back to what you're talking about, it's like, I don't think we understand how much uh, oh. time, effort, money, research, et cetera, et cetera, has been put into that thing. Oh, yeah, 100%. I mean, I think, and it's a stat, I'd have to look it back up again, but it's it's mostly in, I believe, China, also Japan, Korea, where there's a lot of tech workers that do spend a fair amount of time in front of screens and don't necessarily go outside and and actually very much expose their eyes to sunlight so they have higher rates of myopia. So we're literally talking about technology changing human the human body like without any interference like now i have to go get glasses because i have my myopia i i and what what is myopia it's uh it's nearsightedness i think or it's farsightedness i don't know i have 2020 vision it's because i spent a lot of time in canada as a kid in open fresh air yeah 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 like i mean what a world, what a world we're living in, you know, yeah. like, uh, you just, when you think about it, um, we're up against, like, we're up against something because, yeah. uh, yeah. I mean, like this is only what a decade touch over a decade past. And we're still realizing how far down the, uh, the chain we really are like how, you know, like how it, how a part of us our society it's become uh, this little device totally and i think you know with your mention on teenagers and and influencing how they think are kids um you know it, i think it's it's crazy because the printing press which is sort of like the first foray into i guess you'd say communi- it, it's a communication technology right you can spread memes very easily if you can print words but it was only until I, I think even the 1900s, like maybe even like 1960s, not that many people could read. So they were illiterate. And then, you know, you have a layer on top of that. You have the Internet then you have social media. Then you have AI coming. So you very much accelerated kind of where this is going. Um, and I honestly... I have no predictions. It's it's so quick and so fast that it uh, it is kind of one of those things where I'm just like, whoa, I, I have no idea what's going to happen. Like I sort of jokingly try to make predictions, but in, in all honesty, I, I don't really know. Um, I've certainly played around with some of the new uh, uh, AI <laughs> chat GBT out there and some of the some of the APIs for it. So it's been interesting. What do, what, what do you think? Of, what do you think of all that? I mean, like, well, I'll give you some examples. So when it first came out, um, I think this was uh, the three version. So chat GPT-3 would have been like January, maybe. I went on and I signed up for an account because I wanted to see what it could do. And I asked it a question in French, thinking I would stump it. So I was schooled in French as a young kid and went, went, so I speak fluent French. It's just like, I'm going to stump it. Ask you a question in French. Replies in perfect French. And says, I actually don't speak French in French, in perfect French, but just because I can do pattern recognition so quickly, I'm able to sort of get there. And so proceeds to have a conversation, mind blown. The other thing that I asked, and and this is where I think some of the, the crazy stuff gets, but 
Another type of language is DNA. Another type of language is kind of chemistry molecules. So you can ask ChatGPT, hey, create me a different molecule for Agent Orange and it will answer. Create me a different molecule for carfentanil. I think they've taken that part off, but you can see that it is able to sort of process any text string. Um, so that's fascinating. Um, but at the same time, it's terrifying, right? <laughs> like pretty terrifying. It's not great at um, DNA as yet, although there are some other, um, there are some other large language models out there that, that are pretty good at, at sort of creating genes anew or like doing insertions, altering function. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know where we're going, Sean. I, I I'm, 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 well, I'm, I have my very basic thoughts on chat GPT. The first time I ever heard anyone talk about it was Vance sitting on stage and him and a guy in the audience who I'm now in a, in a, a men's group with, which is kind of funny enough. Oh, nice. Yeah. Uh, we're talking about it. Like Vance was like going back and forth and talking to the audience. And I'm like, I'm going to have to look this up. Right. So since then I've looked it up and certainly played around with it. And I'm just like, I, I think Sean's too simple folks to like really understand the danger he is working with there. Like I kind of get it, but I kind of like, you know, okay. You know, like it's, it's, uh, anyways, it's, I, I don't know. It's, it's, it's like, where does this go? I don't, I don't freaking know. Do you think they knew where, uh, the iPhone was going when they first, like certainly some people understood, but I mean the technology on it and how much the people have just become like, you know, absolutely hooked to this thing is, is wild to watch. I've been, I've been told a lot and, and could Sean do a better job of being on social media? Certainly. But I understand the dangers of it and of, of like, get, you know, it gives you the update of how many hours you've been on it, uh, per week or per day or what I think it's per day, isn't it? And then all of a sudden it'll spit out like three and a half hours. I'll be like, Oh, I need to get the frick off this thing. Like there go, like think about your day and how many hours you get. And Sean's on that thing. It's like, no, thank you. No, thank you. Yeah. So, you know, it's like, could you grow your, your, your show more? Maybe. I don't know. Could I lose my life in that thing? Probably. No, thank yeah. you. I don't know. I mean, yeah, there, there, there is suggestion that with kind of the accelerationism we're experiencing with, with tech is that there'll be kind of like these Amish cults spinning up, but like, but they're like 1980s technology instead of, you know, we're just going to do buggies and things like they'll literally be like, okay, we're only going to have VCRs, cassette tapes. Like we're not going to have it. <laughs> I've heard of this. Like, I, I mean, are you going to go, yeah. are you going to go back? Are we going to get time to stand still and no. rewind the clock? No. So no. it's like, you have to find ways to, you know, like, uh, the, there's things you can probably put in place, uh, on on devices to make sure that screen time only goes for so long. I'm I'm speaking directly to kids. You can put yeah. lot, you know, like one one of the things back when I was a car salesman when I first came back two weeks. That's all I lasted. Um, but I was like reading the the thing. This, this is 2011. I was like reading the you know like the features of all these vehicles because I you know I was like well if you know the features maybe you can sell it to somebody. All right, so I'm reading through. And one of the vehicles back then you could program it for uh, who was driving it. So if it was your 16 year old you could put max speeds on it and that was over a decade ago and i remember thinking like oh that's pretty smart if you're worried about your kids and you don't want them doing what sean did and maybe kate did where it's like let's see where the governor on the, is on this thing it's like well you can't do that now and it's like 
to me, that's pretty, pretty slick. So there's no way you're going back. It's just how can we start to put in some safeguards to, to mitigate some of the problems that if I can't deal with, you know, this, how's a, a five or a six year old or a 12 year old going to deal with it? It's, it's not possible. Um, one thing before I get you out of here, cause I, and good old technology here is going to be our friend again. You said DNA is a language. I'm going to think about that now for like the next week. Can you just briefly explain to me what you mean by that? Yeah, I can. So DNA in a cell uh, is denoted by what we call nitrogenous bases, A-C-T-G, adenine, thymine, cytosine, guanine. You might have seen the movie Gattaca. So it's G-A-T-T. Yeah. Um, So you rearrange those into different we call them codons. So three letter words, three, three letters make kind of a, a code for an amino acid, uh, which is a, which, which form goes to form proteins that enable us to live, to live uh, and that basically everything to live. Um, so it's kind of like the source code of, of biological organisms. Um, so you know, I think with large language models, there's a there's a tremendous possibility of using these to sort of find and find find new genes, find new what we call paralogs between species. Maybe like, oh, this might work over here. Um, not to say that it's you know all good or or whatever, but I I do see that absolutely that style of model can absolutely be trained on you know whole what we call genomes of of beings to be able to say like, Hey, this is maybe where we want to go with this particular gene, or maybe we could fix this disorder. If we had this in here, like how would we fix it? What could we do? Like, I'm not going to get too much into it, but it's, uh, that's but what you're saying. Am yeah. I, am I visualizing this right? You're, you're saying like, so DNA, you can read it as a language. Okay. And, and so my brain immediately goes to like a sentence. Let's just, you know, mm-hmm. the sentences, mm-hmm. whatever. And in the middle of it, it, it it's misspelling thing. So you're yeah. saying you could see that and just take that out and put thing in the proper spelling and it would fix the sequence and all of a sudden the disorder would disappear. Yeah, that has to be done at what we call, in humans, it would have to be done at the, what we call the embryonic stage. You could do it later. There are moral questions that that get that get attached to that because yes, there are specific genes that underlie things like Huntington's disease, uh, autosomal polycystic kidney disease, which my partner actually has. Um, so, like, could that be fixed? You know, initially, that would be great. But then you get into other sort of moral dilemmas on what should be fixed and what should not be fixed. So I'm. Well, I, you know, it's a tool, it's available, and then, you know, leave the philosophizing and, and morality maybe to the philosophers, but it should be discussed, I think, you know, how do we use this tool? How do we balance it? Like, we're not going to go back to the 80s and be an Amish 80s cult, although that would be a, a great name for like a band, Amish 80s cult, like, I don't know. Be a great um, little experiment for, for a yeah. month. Yeah, there you go. Go back to VHS. Can we, That's in right. that Am- Amish cult, could they at least have a blockbuster so I could go waste two hours of my night, like searching out the movie I want to rent for the evening? Poor there kids, they'll, they'll never get to experience that, which is too bad. I know. 
appreciate you coming and doing this, uh, Kate. I, I, you know, um, (laughs) we bounced around a lot, but that's all right. I, uh, there, there's too much. It it feels like there's like so many topics that a guy can uh, try and uh, rattle your brain around with either way. I appreciate you giving me some time and uh, I look forward to seeing you again uh, when hopefully we get to bump into each other. I assume later on this year. Oh, for sure. Thanks, Sean. Really appreciate it. Nice to talk. Okay. Take care. Bye.